Here in Orlando, Florida, O-Town Compost is leading the composting revolution, recycling organic waste into a nutrient-rich resource. Join Charlie Pioli, founder of O-Town Compost, as we hear from the nation's leading voices behind the grassroots community composting movement. Welcome to the Community Composting Podcast. If you enjoy the Community Composting Podcast and want to support future episodes, please follow the link in the episode show notes to give a small monthly reoccurring donation, even if it's 5 to $10 a month. We'll continue to come out with killer content to keep the grassroots movement rolling. Hi, welcome to the Community Composting Podcast, episode number 16. I have here today Meredith with Common Ground Compost, LLC in New York, New York. I think uh, you're in the borough of Manhattan, actually. And I've heard, you know, a lot about you before we met. But I think in the last uh, couple months, we met on a um, ISLR Community Compost Coalition networking event. And um, you're just like me, you know, we're, we're waste nerds and we just love waste. But if you could tell me about your background, Meredith, and, you know, how you got started in the waste industry and how your passion really grew from there. Yeah, thanks, Charlie. I'm so glad that we're, um, we finally made this happen. <laughs> we did. We did meet like in a in one of the Zoom breakout rooms in a, I think it was a Community Compost Coalition hosted event by the Institute for Local Self Reliance. Yeah, um, yes. Yeah, so Common Ground Compost is based in um, in New York City in Manhattan. Uh, I'm actually currently in the attic of my parents' garage in Massachusetts, um, but that is New York City is where uh, where the business is based, and um, I can. I can quickly give a little background about how I kind of got here, not physically to this particular location, but here where I am professionally, um, I'll just I'll just introduce Common Ground Compost first. So we're we're a zero waste services company, um, and our work uh, sort of falls into what are now five different divisions. Um, when I first took over running the company from our founder uh, Laura Rosenshine. Um, I started. I, I started with the company in late 2015 um, and took over running the company in 2017. Um, at that time, our divisions were roughly consulting, zero waste events, and microhauling. Um, and since then, we've added um, a data and metrics division, um, as well as a division that we're calling Waste in the Community, which is our advocacy and education division. Um, this is all work that we've already been doing, but um, in 2021, it really became evident that it was time to have those additional divisions focus their work. Um, and we've got folks that are leading those different charges. Um, so just to explain kind of what my trajectory was, uh, I've been essentially all trash all the time for about 10 years now. Um, hard to believe the time really flies um, when you're yeah, having this much fun. Um, I studied anthropology in undergrad uh, and moved to New York. Um, and just kind of took whatever job I could find. Um, I worked as a, in PR um, for the company Adidas. Um, it was like managing managing their samples warehouse um, warehouse. I mean, it was a closet uh, in you know in the middle of Manhattan. Um, 
when I was 21 and that was a six month gig. It's the most corporate position I've ever held. And I realized at that time, like this obviously isn't what isn't for me. Um, I worked for uh, a nonprofit software company that was um, focused on kind of the intersection of um, apparel brands and the factories that they used. And then the safety and environmental regulations that the companies were requiring the factories to meet. Um, very strange niche. The financial crisis hit. That company um, went under, and I went to grad school. Um, so my master's is in urban policy and sustainability management. Um, and when I started my master's program, I, you know, I've always been interested in the environment. Always really cared about the ocean. Um, but you know, I, I, I didn't really, wouldn't have told you when I started grad school that trash was my future. Um, it's sort of, uh, as it happens with many people, I kind of fell into it and never looked back. Um, it, during my third semester out of four, um, it was a two-year program, uh, I traveled to Beirut and Lebanon with another, with a group of students. We all went together as part of, um, as part of one of the programs um, at the new school in New York. And my professor placed me with an organization that is a farm to table restaurant and a farmer's market. And they wanted the restaurant to um, essentially have a waste audit done. And then they wanted the restaurant to be able to say they were zero waste. And they have volunteers come through very regularly and had wanted this zero waste project to be completed and none of the volunteers were interested. And I was like, yeah, I'll try that. Um, so I did some research, um, read a lot of waste audit reports, taught myself how to do a waste audit. Um, conducted a waste audit in this restaurant, um, which was really cool. 95% of their waste was organic, um, which is very high. Uh, for anybody who has, I'm sure, Charlie, you've conducted your fair share of waste audits or assessments. And, you know, an average restaurant is probably going to be somewhere between, let's call it like, if it's a bar that has a lot of glass, maybe they'd be as low as 30%, maybe as high as 75% uh, organic waste by weight. Um, that's a pretty wide range, obviously, because it depends on what else is in there. Um, I don't know, Charlie, if you have other stats that you usually point to for a, for a waste audit in a restaurant. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I've done my fair share of waste audits for all types of commercial waste generators. And yeah. I think restaurants and uh, cafeterias are really far up there with the organics waste portion yeah. Um, you know, by weight, of course. So, I mean, I, I think, I think that, um, it was quite surprising to me and it's usually not very variable. It's like, if they, you know, I used to work at a Lebanese restaurant and when they would make baba ganoush, they would just like that day in the dumpster, there's plenty of just eggplant, you know, mm -hmm. eggplant, husks and stuff like that so yeah I mean that that's really interesting and I was gonna ask you about uh, the organization Fern that you uh, were part of in Beirut yeah I can I'll keep going on that you know how I got here um so after finishing that summer semester I had one more one more semester in New York to finish my master's and couldn't stop thinking about trash and couldn't stop thinking about Lebanon. Um, mm -hmm. And so I ended up finishing my master's. I wrote my, I wrote my like thesis capstone project um, on the zero waste initiative that we launched um, when I was, when I was there. Um, and I ended up moving back to Beirut uh, where my, now my husband um, and I uh, launched a nonprofit initiative together 
that was called Food Establishments Recycling Nutrients or FERN. Um, so this was 2012 and 2013. Uh, we got 16,800, I believe, dollars in seed funding from the British Embassy um, to Lebanon. The US Embassy didn't really want anything to do with us. The British Embassy was really jazzed about it. Um, they were super supportive. It was really cool to start to kind of engage with some of the, the development community that was there. Um, poor chronological luck on our part. Uh, people cared, people were really interested. Um, there's still a war um, going on there. Uh, there's a refugee crisis. There was one then, it's even worse now. Um, there are a lot of problems in, in the region and um, politically in Lebanon, There, it's just a, it's in shambles, unfortunately. Um, tons of corruption. So I would guess that like food waste recycling has fallen to the background. So that's, it's, it's a crazy, um, it's a crazy thing. At the time, people were really interested in it, wanted to engage with it. There were shifting priorities. Um, then a few years later, there was a major waste crisis that happened because the company that had been responsible for the contract for the, the Beirut municipal area, um, thanks uh, in major part to a lot of corruption, um, essentially just stopped collecting waste. Um, so the Beirut River turned into a garbage river that was just full of bags of trash. They were using it as like this storage river. Um, it, it hasn't really gotten much better. Uh, waste is being wow. collected again. But at that time, two years after, um, we had sort of had to leave Fern behind, essentially. And I came back to New York. People started contacting us. How do I start composting? How do I start collecting my waste? I want to figure out how to divert glass. How do I reuse paper? Like, and, and people have built their own programs. Um, oh, wow. You know, I basically had to respond to be like, sorry, we're not there anymore, but you should talk to, there's a, there's an organization called Compost Balade that, that launched and has been doing a lot of um, compost workshop, compost education, building backyard bins, um, that kind of thing. And um, are companies. there end markets for like the other materials as well as organics and stuff? Yeah. So there's a, the company that we, uh, that I initially was in contact with um, back when I was still in my master's program is called Cedar Environmental. Um, and the director of that company's name is Ziad and he is a total garbage nerd. Um, mm -hmm. He's a, he's a mechanical engineer and an agricultural engineer super focused initially on creating in-vessel organics recycling technology. Um, so they've just got the, you know, they've got big in-vessel composters um, that he has and they're operating um, in a few different parts of the country. And he has essentially started to build a vertically integrated system to get um, pelletized organics and compost into the agricultural sector. Um, it's, it's a really tough battle because he's, again, you know, trying to do this in a country that um, mm. has almost completely non-functional politics. Um, you know, I complain plenty about our politics, but <laughs> it's, a, it's not even a comparison. Um, and then in the last few years, as more and more issues have started to arise on the front of like um, what municipal services are being provided to people, his company and a lot of collaborating organizations and individuals and um, entrepreneurs have stepped in. So they have a, a, glass, uh, a glass recycling initiative that has helped to revive a dying glass blowing industry, um, bringing in new apprentices to learn traditional glass blowing techniques using glass that can no longer be recycled in Lebanon because their glass recycling facilities were targeted during the war in 2006 with Israel. Um, also, you know, paper recycling is happening. 
Um, there's a lot of plastics diversion. Ziad's company also has a number of different um, plastic, either sort of sorting, shredding and bailing techniques or even plastic recycling where they're taking hard to recycle plastics and then using a little bit of heat, like low heat and a hydraulic press to turn them into boards and using those um, to build outdoor recycling bins, to make vertical walls. They're doing a lot of really, really amazing things. So there's a lot happening. Um, you know, it speaks a lot to the idea that um, waste is a resource and that if you can mm. um, find folks who have the bandwidth and are given the support structures they need, um, or even if they're not, if they can come together around um, shared goals, uh, you know, you can use that material to, to make change. So, yeah. Yeah. And just shifting gears to the United States, um, like what is your opinion of our waste management industry? And are there any facilities that really stand out to you that you want to mention as being like really cool, really innovative? Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to travel to see different facilities around the country. Yeah, that's a really big question. Not fair. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'll tie it back in. So um, after leaving Beirut, I moved to New back to New York. Uh, I was working for the Lower East Side Ecology Center for a little while. They have an organics program, but I was focused more on the kind of like business operations side of things and doing marketing and program development. Um, and that's sort of when I met Laura and started working at Common Ground Compost. So that brings us basically up to today. Um, I have done a little bit of traveling. I prefer to see recycling facilities anywhere, anytime I am anywhere. Um, you know, a couple broad thoughts maybe. Um, first, I, I'm incredibly frustrated by the lack of consistency across the country in terms of what is required of municipalities um, and what is required of uh, companies that make stuff, right? So uh, wow. we only have waste because producers make products and things that we can't, um, you know, process or, or really eat ourselves, right? Um, you know, we as individuals, when we buy toys for our kids or buy food, whatever it is, um, you know, it's not our fault that we end up with non-recyclable packaging, um, but yeah. we have been, the messaging um, is that it's our fault and the messaging yeah, is Yeah, I agree. Like standardization has been uh, kind of uh, one of the biggest things, not only for recycling, but at a municipal level for composting programs and um, and then of course, it seems like every day some new drink company or food company is coming out with like you know a hard to recycle plastic container with like a metal aluminum rim it's like yeah. what you know don't even pretend like that's recyclable so well and it's it, there are a lot of layers to this problem like you know sure you can look at you can look at the individuals who live in a community um, where there's no recycling infrastructure and you can blame the individuals for not recycling. You know, you can say you guys hate the earth, you guys are irresponsible, but if they don't have a place to discard their material, if there's literally no culture of recycling because there hasn't been an option to do it, it is not those people's fault. Um, right. And that's, that's a, a major failure. That is my, that is, that is what is most disappointing to me about um, the United States waste infrastructure uh, as a whole. Um, you know, we as the richest country in the world uh, have just decided that investing in any kind of infrastructure is not a priority. Um, and it's yeah, infuriating. And, and um, I definitely want to highlight Florida as being one of the whole Southeast region of the United States is like 
the most wasteful region in the United States, you know, uh, per capita. Um, and, you know, that's why I started O-Town Compost, because there wasn't an outlet for people's food scraps here in Orlando. And now you look at some other big cities uh, that are, you know, composters are emerging, but it's been so slow. Um, yeah. So, I mean, to, to answer your question, I mean, looking at the community compost realm, um, looking us, at us as an industry uh, is very exciting, I think, um, because it, you know, it proves, it, it speaks to, um, and you can just look at any small organization or company that has launched, small or large really, um, as proof that there's demand for this work, um, mm -hmm. that it can be done, right? Uh, uh, but where that meet, meets politics, um, you know, yeah. barriers to entry, right? In terms of permitting requirements and cost mm -hmm. to entry for licensing and those kinds of things. Um, and so how do you, major and issues. I think all community composters, our, dem, our customer demographic are probably all very similar. How do you move into the different demographics, you know, low income people, uh, men, because most of our customers are female and, um, you know, just multifamily is another one. Like, do you have any, you know, great programs for multifamily units? Um, that's a three part question, but I know you're throwing them at me so fast. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, well, for, I don't have all the answers. We'll say that first, um, which is obvious, but I have to say it anyway. Um, you know, I think you can look at, uh, like, let's use San Francisco as an example, very easy example to give because they're you know, kind of gold shining star municipal program. One company has a contract for all their waste streams. Um, you know, they have an arts and residence program at Recology. They're doing amazing things. That's one way to do it. If you've got political will and tons of funding, or at least the recognition that composting isn't producing more waste, it's just redesignating it to a different um, end destination. And by recognizing your short, medium, and long term. Uh, budget for uh, mm -hmm. let's call it landfilling and incineration and just recognizing that that needs to be diverted and reallocated into a new industry or growing the compost industry and recognizing that you then have a, 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 re a usable product at the end um, yeah. the economics makes sense but you need and to let me to just mention my perspective like recology is very lucky in to be the sole hauler for all of that I mean they're set forever and you know, I think they do very good work, but uh, also San Francisco's diversion rate is the highest in the country up at 80%, yeah. which is, I mean, if cities like New York City, Boston, Orlando are serious about achieving zero waste, you need to like do what works like the city of San Francisco. So yeah, well, and you asked about single family homes and, and you know, high rise residences and men and low income folks. I mean, Part of this is um, meeting people where they are, right? You can't, you can't sell the same service to the same people. Um, just quickly to speak to the way we run our company, we have um, our micro hauling service, Reclaimed Organics is a simple five gallon bucket that we empty and give the bucket back. We're not swapping because we don't have access to water year round. Um, we're doing a little like spray with alcohol, clean out with a paper towel kind of thing. 
Um, we also have a concierge white glove janitorial service where we're going into offices and emptying and cleaning compost bins and removing the material. We're meeting those corporate offices where they are, which is that they're in buildings that don't offer organic collection services, but they want to pay to have someone come in and do it for them. And that was our biggest, that was that, that service brought us into lockdown and then ended up with obviously nothing, right? So yeah. the end of 2019, early 2020 looked real good for us. Um, and we made the very, very smart business decision to depend on office revenue to continue to grow. Um, thankfully, we're still here, but that was a little diversion. Um, you know, to speak to a New York City example, uh, New York City, um, the New York City um, Housing Authority, uh, uh, NYCHA, which is the New York City Public Housing Organization, um, still doesn't really provide access even to recycling to most of their residents. These buildings, it's partly an infrastructure issue, it's partly um, a political will issue and a, and a cultural issue where um, the, the buildings were constructed uh, with incinerators, with garbage chutes that went straight to an incinerator. So at the time, they didn't need recycling. Um, and the way that they have, um, the way that they have now kind of shifted to uh, creating recycling infrastructure in these facilities is by um, placing a blue and a green recycling bin kind of in a central outdoor location outside of these buildings, partly because they don't have space indoors. Um, and then there are plenty of other reasons, but you know, those bins are highly contaminated because they're kind of in public areas. And because they are outdoors, people are most likely not gonna use them. If it's the middle of the night, why would you walk outside? Many people might not feel safe doing that. There are plenty of reasons why that's not a great system. Um, and then organics recycling just adds another layer of complexity there, where if you already have an issue with where your recycling infrastructure is cited, adding another stream really isn't going to help anything. Um, there have been some really interesting studies that have been done. Um, Recycle Bank is an organization that has been working on um, both like door to door standard residential collection and also um, more dense like high rise collection programs using incentives. Um, and community members doing door-to-door -door collection to, to sort of recover value from the waste stream. Um, and they've been successful, but those programs have been um, small uh, and pilot at, at the pilot scale. Um, I do think that programs like that could succeed, but I think we need to have a massive restructuring of even the way we approach materials management. Um, and, and it needs to be a nationwide reckoning really with the fact that waste doesn't have to be waste and, and trash doesn't have to cost, um, you know, what it does right now. So you're uh, talking yeah. about standardization nationwide. You wouldn't be able to fully standardize everything because obviously, you know, there are, there are a lot of differences in mm -hmm. the makeup of waste streams and in the, the housing stock and the types of businesses that exist and all these different things. But um, if you can start to standardize at least um, setting goals, um, identifying, you know, the, the, the funding necessities to build basic infrastructure. Um, you know, we have to start, again, you have to meet people where they are. You have to start somewhere. Um, so, you know, if, a, if there's no materials recovery facility within a hundred miles from, uh, you know, a, a, a municipal center, like maybe start there. Um, maybe start with um, checking out what your, what a municipality's, um, permitting requirements are to uh, launch an organics recycling facility. You know, are they, does it require a site that is far larger than any small organization or individual would ever be able to start with? 
um, or you know, are the distance requirements um, really greater than what best practices dictate? You know, um, and some of that is also being done. You know, the the U.S. Composting Council is doing some awesome work um, trying to look at uh, at least providing some recommended baseline requirements for what cities and municipalities and regions can do when building their um, organics recycling policies uh, to kind of look at a set of best practices instead of having to start um, mm. you know, at, at ground level or, or even do their own research. Now there's a document that they can look at, so. Wow, that is great. And yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of the community composters responsibility to get with the municipality and encourage them to inform their decisions about, you know, permitting and kind of shaping the laws. Um, and, you know, we came up against say uh, a law recently with the city of Orlando and it was, you know, time that they changed or made an amendment. So, you know, th that's possible for a lot of, um, a lot of other community composters and, I think that's why you got to get political in this industry and uh, really, you know, pay attention. So, yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I wouldn't call myself politically engaged before getting into trash. And I have, I don't mm -hmm. even, I can't even count how many times I have testified in public hearings now about waste policy. <laughs> um, so you did know, you I, vote for Catherine Garcia since she was a, uh, you know, Department of Sanitation. Yeah, I mean, we had ranked choice voting for the first time. So she, she was definitely on my, she was one of my choices for sure. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think, you know, getting, getting, speaking to that point about, you know, political engagement, recognizing, you know, that really waste is, waste is local, right? Um, all waste is, is municipal at the very least or, or regional, um, which is what makes it so hard sometimes, you know, when we're presenting to to office customers trying to educate folks who live all over the country, they want us to tell them, how do we recycle? And the answer is like, I can't tell you because you have to do one thing, you have to do another thing, you have to do a third thing. Um, right. It'd be great for that not to be the problem or rather not to be the issue at all someday in the future, hopefully that'll happen. Um, but I think in the meantime, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a burden. I think it's a major burden for small organizations or even individuals who are trying mm. to compost, you know, someone who's trying to launch a program where yeah. they're helping folks compost in their backyards or trying to launch a micro hauling operation or, or processing, whatever it might be, um, you know, the, the onus is on that individual or that organization to, under, to research, understand what the policies are, what is legal and what is illegal. Are there even rules on the books? And if there aren't any rules on the books, does it mean they have gray area and can operate? Or does it mean that anything they're doing is illegal? Because even that mm -hmm. is sometimes not clear. And um, I think that goes yeah. to the EPR, the extended producer responsibility, because to me, that looks like the only way that we can avoid, um, you know, just contamination through the roof. You know, those producers and manufacturers need to be the ones paying attention uh, rather than the individual, like shifting the onus to the producer away from the individual. And I believe there's a, a bill in the state of Maine uh, uh, recently that occurred. Um, do you know anything about that bill? Um, let's see, which of the open tabs on my desktop is about <laughs> that bill? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I need to stop distracting myself with my second monitor here. Um, 
I don't have a ton of details about it, but I do agree that um, it's finally time for, as we said earlier, the, you know, companies that are making the stuff to be the ones that are stepping up and recognizing their responsibility. Um, you know, thinking about the the infrastructure bill that passed today and the the kind of original proposal versus the current one. And I remember seeing a chart where it was like the only funding that was increased between like the initial draft and and the final draft was like more funding to get oil and gas companies to clean up their wells. Um, and, you know, it's like, whatever, sorry, I'm going down a bit of a tangent, but companies need to be responsible for the shit that they're putting out. Um, yeah. If individuals have to be responsible, you know, companies do too. Um, and I think, you know, some of the things that I'd like to see are, you know, obviously a focus on the hard to recycle stuff. Um, you know, not every community has access even to recycling infrastructure to process a standard plastic water bottle, but at least standard standard plastic water bottles can be recycled in some places. Um, where, but you know, um, uh, granola bar wrappers uh, are are much more challenging um, across the board. Uh, you know, th there are a lot of types of packaging I think that are are cheap and easy to use. Um, they're cheap to ship, uh, but they are very very hard to recover value from. And we either need to look to a future where we're not using those materials anymore, or we need to look to a future where it's much, much easier and much more normalized for the average individual and the average office building or whatever it is to separate those materials and have a, an easy and convenient way to get them back to wherever they need to go in order to be um, you know, processed. And ideally part of all of this is also reusables, stuff that lasts longer, stuff that's built better. Um, you know, that kind of thing. As you start to take on more food scraps, you realize very quickly that you need a better composting system to process the material. This is why I highly recommend the aerated static pile micro bin designed and made easy by O2 Compost. In 60 days, I have finished compost without putting in the labor of turning the pile. The piles heat up to over 140 degrees, killing pathogens, weed seeds, and fly larvae, making the end product safe to use in the garden. With 32 plus years of experience in the compost industry, Peter Moon, owner of O2 Compost, is a leading expert in the field of ASP composting. I encourage you to set up a free half an hour consultation with Peter Moon by going to his website www.o2compost.com. That's the letter O, the number two, compost.com. If you mentioned that you heard about O2 Compost on this podcast, you'll receive a 10% discount on the purchase of the microbin compost training program. Okay. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about your company actually real quick because you do have a micro hauling division, which is uh, kind of a similar residential uh, program with five gallon buckets, but you don't do swaps. And I, it looks like um, a lot of it involves drop-off locations around Manhattan. Is that correct? Yeah, so our micro-hauling division serves um, residents and businesses. Um, we, we do use a standard five-gallon bucket. Um, that has evolved over time. Uh, initially, we were using, um, gosh, we probably had like five or six different container sizes and uh, we finally decided to standardize those. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we don't have, we're based out of a community garden um, in Manhattan. Uh, we have a partnership with a school and we use um, their space for our essentially equipment storage and our organics processing. 
um, kind of in exchange for acting as stewards of that space and doing education with the students. So uh, the water is turned off half the year when it's cold. So we can't, we literally can't wash buckets um, all year round. And um, the drop-off model that we launched actually only exists right now because the city defunded the residential organics collection program due to COVID related budget cuts. So um, before, you know, in the before times, um, our services looked roughly like a patchwork of um, collecting buckets, doing this concierge office service that we launched um, partly uh, thanks to winning $5,000 from the US Composting Council's first ever emerging composter pitch competition. Um, and we used that money to buy our first electric assist cargo trike, um, which is made by an awesome company called Main Street Pedicabs in Denver. Um, check them out if you haven't seen them before. Our, our trike is called a pedal truck. Um, I'll link them to them in the show Great, yeah, um, those guys are awesome and happy to point to them or connect you with them if anybody you know wants. They, they really wanna support um, more composters using their gear uh, and they've told me that before. So obviously lockdown has been hard for everybody, but um, the, the trikes facilitated you know, pretty rapid growth in the amount of material that we could collect, um, but, but our processing capacity remains very, very small because of what I mentioned earlier about our site. Um, and so what we what we were doing, again, in the before times, like up until March 2020, was gradually growing additional uh, what we call consolidation points. Um, imagine a hub and spoke model where, you know, from one central location, we're going out collecting material, bringing it back to that central location. And then we actually would pay a commercial hauler with their compost truck to come and pick up that material. Super, super clean, very low contamination um, material that would get brought to a commercial composting site. Um, New York City's commercial waste infrastructure is its own many, many hour long conversation. So I won't get into that unless you want me to answer questions I about it, but- do um, have some questions later. Great, we'll get, we'll get there. Uh, yeah, so we, um, we also had at the time, in the before times, um, a city funded drop off at our community garden where we were just ask, acting as the, the hosts for these five compost bins. Um, that lived just outside the garden gate. Um, they, were, they weren't locked and they would frequently get taken. Um, folks would really like to sit on them or use them for storage or whatever. So we would always make sure to order a new one if they went missing, make sure they were always lined. Um, they were out there 24 seven and the city would come and collect them. Initially, we had one bin, it was emptied once a week and it got up to five that were being emptied multiple times a week by the city's residential um, organics recycling program. Um, so that entire program was defunded because of COVID budget cuts. Um, some of the funding was restored. Things are hopefully looking better. Um, not perfect, but anyway, better for next year. But in response to that, we launched um, a drop-off program where we show up for two hours on Wednesdays from 4 to 6 p.m., way uptown, far away from where we are, because our collection radius can only go so far on the trike. And we essentially said, all right, we'll go 10 blocks north of that and we'll have a drop off up there. Um, and we ask people to contribute a couple bucks if they can to cover our costs, because then that material is collected by that same commercial waste hauler. Um, you know, we're not gonna, we, we, initially we were hauling everything back downtown, um, back to our garden. Um, but there are, you know, roughly every week we're, we're collecting about four 64 gallon totes worth. So about, um, about a thousand pounds, a little bit more than a thousand pounds worth of material. Um, and you're paying yeah. the commercial hauler to come pick it up? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And um, 
how how does the commercial service work? Uh, I do you have other food waste generators besides offices that you serve? Yeah, so uh, very early on, and even now, our focus is still as micro haulers on the smallest generators who really are the least attractive customers for a regular trash company with a truck, um, especially for a, a waste company, you know, a, a trash company that has a, an organic service. They really want to hit, you know, five locations that each have, you know, two yard containers full of organics. They don't want to stop for one five gallon bucket. Right. Um, and that's why micro hauling exists. Right. So our target customers for that, um, for our micro hauling service really are like small cafes, small restaurants, bodegas, um, and then some of these small offices. And, you know, what we'd really, we'd really like to see these kinds of like small scale localized micro hauling collection and processing services all over the place. Um, and the goal is certainly to, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, like, um, you know, a, a, a business starting to process, starting to recycle organics isn't producing more waste. It's just a different category. And once they start separating food scraps from trash, they have much less trash. Um, they should really have almost no trash. And by weight, it is nearly no trash at all. That's but with uh, that doesn't necessarily work in my opinion for small generators. Um, it, de you know. it depends if they're, if it's a really small site and they don't have um, a spot where they can hold a trash bag all week, they might have to continue paying for the same frequency of collection for their black bag trash, even though there's almost nothing in it. So you're absolutely right. In some cases, there are no cost savings um, for these smallest businesses. They're just paying an additional service. The savings come when they can reduce the frequency of collection for their trash waste stream. And or, what the, I see and, as, or the dumpster size is another. Sure, it depends on, it depends on what they're doing. You know, New York, um, it, as the greatest city in the world has no space for waste infrastructure. So, you know, it's just bags of garbage piled on the street. <laughs> yeah. You guys um, are famous for that. And that's why yeah. you have so many rats. Exactly. And the more <laughs> we can compost, the fewer rats there will be because the more um, right. of that food source is going to be locked up in, in totes and, and hard plastic containers instead of, of black trash bags on the curb. And one of the things New York is trying to do, but has not yet figured out yet, is how to improve the containerization of commercial waste. Um, one of the ways I think that should work, I'm not saying I have the answer, is that small businesses um, kind of have one container where they're consolidating their material. So you could find savings there where, mm. for example, this is how it works in South Korea and many other places. There's a keypad, you enter a code, that machine knows that it's you, you put your bag in and it bills you based on the weight of material. Um, you know, this is, these kinds of things are not rocket science, but they're not politically feasible because you need to take a parking spot in order to put waste infrastructure. Mm. Um, you know, and that's its own problem, right? Better public transit, would make it easier for people to not need cars. Yeah, um, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, Korea here is like ahead of the world when it comes to food waste recycling. But I, I want to talk about common ground compost, um, you know, education and advocacy, how you, customizing programs seems to be a big thing that you do. And it's true that not every generator or not every person or business with uh, food waste is necessarily should be treated the same. And we do the same thing. We have to customize our programs to be the best uh, for their, their workflow. Uh, but yeah, I would love to know, like you walk into a business, 
they want a quote in a proposal? Like, what is the process that you follow? Yeah, um, that's a that's a question that I think gets gets into the structure of a business better than really any question. <laughs> um, uh, it, de it definitely depends on what they're looking for. So, you know, I got an email yesterday from a really big company. Uh, they, they were asking about our office compost pickup services. So my response was, are you only interested in our white glove concierge service or are you interested in, you know, zero waste consulting services and blah, 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 blah trying to see what they actually want. And her response was, you know, we're looking for the, the collection service now, but maybe later, you know, we can talk more about an addi additional scope. Um, so that's step one, like figuring out what people really want. Um, mm -hmm. If they are looking for a full, you know, zero waste services proposal, whether it's including hands-on consulting or just education, um, sometimes it'll include a site visit. Frequently it's an initial phone call or some kind of back and forth to, again, understand what kind of scope they're looking for, what budget they have. Um, Still with our consulting projects, we're getting better at this and it's taken a long time to get there. Um, but we, we still roughly estimate based on the amount of time that we think it'll take us to do the work. Um, and we'll break that apart into different categories of services. So if they need handholding with signage design versus um, you know, looking at their infrastructure and identifying new, new waste bins, for example, um, you know, those services, our time is priced the same, but the amount of time that it takes in each of those categories vastly differs depending on what they're looking for. Um, and so that's, as you know, why part of why, why building proposals can be so time consuming. Mm. Um, you know, so we'll try to, you know, copy paste one that we've done for another company that has similar needs. Uh, when it comes to education, um, we're, we're working on this and Jesse from my team is the one that's kind of leading the development of our waste in the community division. Um, and they've been focusing on um, delivering through a few different companies that deliver virtual education, a couple standardized presentations. So, you know, one about zero waste living and another about the intersection of racial justice and um, the climate movement and waste management. Um, and these are, these are kind of canned slideshow presentation, slide deck kind of things that took mm -hmm. us a really long time to build, but now we're able to just kind of like deliver them whenever people need them. Um, and when folks do want a customized presentation where, for example, we're integrating imagery from their site or co-presenting with someone from their team or um, doing more of a live Q&A kind of thing, um, that, will, that will be a bit more tailored uh, depending on, you know, what we imagine our, our time requirement to be for that project. Yeah, I just interviewed Igor with Bootstrap Compost yeah. on the last episode and they, um, for their office clients, they actually do like a lunch and learn where they sometimes provide the catering themselves, but really to get off on a good foot with the, the office staff and, you know, the management and uh, just go through like the composting program, but also the big picture of like where the food waste goes and what it becomes like, uh, you know, uh, I, I might even want to bring in a bucket of our O-Town Black Gold finished compost okay. just so people can run their hands through it. People um, love that. And I mean, yeah. I think Bootstrap, honestly, they helped us a lot with the kind of structural development of our office program. Um, we also do the same thing with a lunch and learn. And it is more of a, you know, how does waste work in New York City um, kind of presentation. Uh, what we've found is that 
what I've found in giving these presentations. And now Jesse obviously does it. Um, and my other team have delivered some of these too. Uh, you always have a couple people who are kind of like, meh. And then the rest of the folks in the room, regardless of how interested they were on the first two slides are like super engaged by the end. Yeah. Because people, as long as you're delivering the information in a way that is engaging, they, they have questions. They're like people want to know about where their trash is going. They want to know how recycling works and what happens to a glass bottle and like, you know, what the difference is between something compostable and something biodegradable. They've just never had anyone to ask. Um, and, yeah. you know, the more the more people get engaged with this, the more people who are becoming waste experts and waste nerds, um, you know, the better it is for everybody, I think. Oh, definitely. And, you know, we're, we're trying to partner with Orange County, uh, the local municipality here to give tours of the landfill because one tour of a waste facility, yeah. like a landfill or a recycle center, like, yeah totally blows people's minds but yeah totally whether it's a compost site or a materials recovery facility or a landfill i it's so eye-opening and yeah we find the same thing people yeah you can't can't learn any faster than when you're actually walking around um a site for sure well okay meredith i just want to give you one more question uh, about sure. the waste characterization study that new york city does every four years or so and you know i was part of that in 2017 cool. i gotta see fresh kills among uh the sims recycling facility in brooklyn but um what you know you last time we talked you said you were pretty familiar with that report and i just wanted to you know think explain what is useful for other composters out there in order to speak to the importance of food organics diversion and what are some things you gleaned from that report? Yeah, I mean, the waste characterization study, which I'm sure you can link in the show notes, is yeah. just amazing because of how, um, how well it was done. So it's super detailed. Um, you know, we point Thank to you. it all the time. I, I put together the majority <laughs> of that. It's really beautiful. Uh, you did great, great work. Um, uh, it, it is the best example of, you know, that you can point to of what's going on in New York City of what the current waste behavior is and of what the potential is for waste diversion. Um, that particular report shows that 34% of New York City's waste stream is potentially compostable, um, which is a huge percentage. Like that's a third of the waste stream. Um, and that's 12,000 tons per day in New York City's case, um, just on the residential side of what the total pie is. So 34% of that is whatever you math people want to figure out. But um, let's see, on our end, we do our own waste characterization studies. Um, we've been doing them for commercial office buildings over the last couple months and have a lot more coming up this fall. And the major points are finding opportunities for reduction. Um, you know, so what's actually going in there and, and shouldn't be. So if we're just talking about organics, um, you know, if, if that's, uh, you know, full eggplants outside the Lebanese restaurant, um, you know, maybe we'd be looking at donation uh, as an option. Um, if it's over-purchasing or spoiled inventory, right? Maybe considering retraining management. Um, so there are behavioral and operational things that you can glean from a report like that. Um, then infrastructure and training and culture, right? So if we see that there's like zero sorting happening, are there even recycling bins in this place? If they are, are they co-located with the trash cans? Um, you know, so just looking in the waste can tell you a lot about that. Um, finding opportunities for cost savings too. So 
Uh, if not enough recycling is making its way into the trash, and if trash is the most expensive waste stream to have hauled away, um, the more recyclables you can put in the recycling stream, the more money you'll save because you have less trash and trash is more expensive than recycling. Um, so, you know, there are cost savings from, from reduction, cost savings from um, from diversion from landfill, um, education. Also, you know, there I, I can't point to the exact study, but I remember reading a study that um, you know, office buildings and sites that have um, good recycling programs where management is engaged in ensuring, you know, sustainable operations, environmentally responsible operations, employees are happier and there's greater employee retention. So there are also benefits for, you know, the, the operations of a business itself. Um, I can't remember what else you asked about in terms of, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I think you, uh, no, you explained very well that like the importance of waste characterization studies or waste audits is what they, is the terminology for more smaller uh, characterization studies where you're still hand sorting. You, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole way to do it to get the, the waste, you know, take a 24 hour snapshot of a business, get the waste onto a table, sort it into, you know, a bunch of different material categories. And oftentimes, um, you know, there is huge waste reduction opportunities in the most obvious places, but the management doesn't know you know, say you're like Olive Garden, you're giving away free breadsticks all the to every table. If you just decided to make that, you can still make it free. But if people had to ask you for the free breadsticks, I mean, that's like 75% reduction or something. So yeah, and I mean, I, you know, I think there's also a huge opportunity for folks who are just getting into the waste industry or who haven't ever done anything like a characterization study before to consider doing it at home. Um, you know, consider yeah. taking taking your trash for a week um, and either separating it into categories before you discard it and then weighing them and opening the bags and looking at everything at the end or you can sort stuff at the end. Um, you'll learn a lot about your own purchasing behavior, even if you just look at something before you put it in the trash can. Where did it? Where did uh. this come from? Why is it in my hand? What am I doing with this? Um, you know, when it comes to actually conducting a waste audit, uh, the most important thing I'll say is make sure you weigh everything beforehand and then weigh it again when you're done. So, you yeah, know, let's you need say the tear weights. Yeah. Well, you need the tear weights, you need the baseline weights. So, you know, if you oh. if you're looking at what a business has generated, for example, um, instead of a full office building, if you're just looking at one tenant and you see that they have, you know. Uh, 15 trash bags and six recycling bags and, you know, a, a pile of cardboard, you want to weigh all that stuff first, and then you have to sort it all. And then you have to weigh wow. what's been sorted. Um, and that way you can really tell what the initial behavior is compared to what the potential behavior is. Right. Okay. And I, yeah, maybe do a pre and a post waste audit after you've kind of learned what- For sure you've seen the results, but for sure. Yeah. Using the audit as a baseline and then conducting mm -hmm. another assessment, even a spot check assessment, once you've done education. Um, yeah. Like you know, a that, visual that audit help. or something. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Meredith. I mean, I'll link uh, how to do your own home waste audit in the show notes. And uh, this has been like really informative. Like I said, we could just go on for hours, but 
<laughs> yeah, we could. I'll um I'll link you to remind me to send you a link to our newsletter if folks want to join. Um, Jesse writes an excellent piece every month, and we're just sharing all kinds of resources. And one of the more recent um, newsletters was entirely about waste auditing. So if people are really interested in that topic, um, we can get them that edition. And is so, that up on your common ground compost? I think we've got to create the page that links to all our past um, newsletters. Uh, so I have to, I have to figure that one out, but if people want it, they can reach out. Okay. Sounds yeah. great. Cool. Um, and you can, if you go to commongroundcompost.com, um, at the footer of the homepage, you can sign up for the newsletter. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks, Charlie. This is really right. nice. I appreciate yeah. you asking me to participate. Yeah. Well, right. take care. Thank you. Thanks everybody for listening. Please rate and review on whichever podcast platform you're listening to. If you feel like this is good content and you're learning a lot about compost, 